0: Hello listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Nick Underwood. And on today's episode, I deep dive into the dark and bloody history of one of the world's most iconic hand signals. An expression loved by skydivers, surfers, and generally awkward people that want to look cool the world over. The Shaka. Then, Nick opens the door for a trip down memory Lane as he discusses an obscure gaming subset that truly set the stage for the multi-million dollar multiplayer tech extravaganza video games that permeate the landscape of home entertainment these days. If you wanna hear Nick and I have an in-depth discussion about video games that made me appreciate the fact that we are both already in long-term relationships and therefore don't need to put any effort into appearing sexually attractive, you've come to the right place. He's talking about BBS door games. Oh, you don't know what that means either? Well, buckle up. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the content clearing house. Content clearing house. And it starts right now. Nick, Josh. How are you? I'm still breathing. Sometimes that's all you can ask for. (laughs) I'll take it. How are you? So what's... I'm great, man. What's new? Good to see you on the show again, man. It's been a while, so I'm really excited to be sitting back in the podcast chair.
1: Yeah, it's always fun. I'm always glad to help out when I can. Uh, Let's see. What's new? Uh, I think last time we chatted, I was traveling still in the Airstream. Still doing that. Now we're in your uh, the great home state of one Josh Evans, I believe, unless I'm misinformed, uh, the big... And Bigger, Texas. Um, oh, you're
0: doxing me, but yes, that is where I'm from. I believe you
1: guys have already talked about that on the pod before. <laughs> yeah, of There's course. There's pools you blow stuff up in and things like that here. Haven't found that. Indeed. But we are, well, we're actually, so we're in a part of Texas. Uh, I actually did a lot of stuff. We went through uh, Galveston and Houston and San Antonio. I was kind of surprised by San Antonio. It was pretty neat. Uh, but now we're at uh, uh, in Big Bend or just above Big Bend in Terlingua. Um Big Bend National Park, kind of blown us away. Um, l- the geography and the geology are a lot cooler than I anticipated down here. It reminds me a lot more about southern Utah. Um,
0: I've never been out there.
1: Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, it's
0: There's... a humongous state, so I've missed a, yeah. quite a bit of it. It's like five states worth of lo- real estate.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we never thought we'd make it to this national park. We try to get to a lot of them. This one's kind of out of the way, um, but we had some time. We're working our way west to get to Arizona, where we'll be for the next few months, and we had a little time to kill, and we're here. It's really neat. Um, had uh, just got had done with dinner. Had some chicken fried antelope, and oh, what? Uh, yeah, uh, apparently it's Texas antelope. I don't know. It tasted kind a of local um, delicacy. Yeah, it was kind of bland, actually. Uh, a little disappointing. But I also had a margarita and a uh, a bourbon chocolate pecan pie that has given me a little bit of energy, so I'm ready to go.
0: All right, man. Got to bring that good. <laughs> Good podcast and energy to the show. Yeah, we'll go with that. How about you? So, well, the first thing is, um, did you hear about the Marshall fires in Boulder? The yeah, I, you know what? The most destructive ask you about fire that. in Boulder history?
1: Yeah, that's not far from you.
0: Yeah, so it is. it started about four miles from our house and we had 70 mile an hour winds. We live just uh, northeast of where the fire started. Yeah. And there was, you know, we saw it start and then we saw this rolling evacuation mandate just pushing through, like every city, kind of like on a beeline to our house. And we started prepping evacuation, like two yeah. two hours ahead of time. And then the wind shifted and it turned, and started going south southeast, which for us was a lucky break. But it was it was like an apocalypse going off. I mean, we were we could see the fire across the horizon. We were seeing it on the news. I mean, it just, it destroyed like 700 homes it was a total tragedy, but luckily we, you know, the wind shifted in our favor. So we didn't have to deal with it here, but there was a, there was a bit where we thought we were going to have to hightail it out of here. We were getting our lives ready to move in the cars. So that was
1: crazy. Yeah. That's wild. I saw a lot of coverage on that. That's, I mean, that's terrifying stuff. That's I can't imagine what it's like to just, I mean, I saw those neighborhoods. They're just gone.
0: Um, yeah I mean it looks like a nuke went off I mean the houses are just leveled it looks like it had been snowing but it was just ash and then it did snow the day after so it was very it was the first real snow of the season and very unlucky timing because if it had came just a few hours earlier it probably would have helped put the fires out Right. so it was I don't know it was a whirlwind of emotions trying to figure out here what we were going to do
1: well, I'm glad, uh, glad you guys are safe and good and everything's good. It's unfortunate for everyone else that that didn't work out. Yeah,
0: it really is. Um, but then uh, I did something awesome. Also, this is right up my alley. A few days ago, we went to a, a rage room here in, uh, in Denver. Have you ever seen rage rooms? You know what those are?
1: I know what they are, and I actually have seen some footage uh, recently of that. Um, some guy named Josh texted me a little bit of that
0: you know it. It was so awesome. It was basically, I feel like it was my second or maybe my third calling in life. (laughs) I felt a few callings over the years, but, uh, we went in, it's called smash it. And, uh, it was actually in Broomfield, just a little South of where we live. But, uh, we went in and it's like this industrial warehouse with like shattered particle board on the wall. Like their, their, their sign was like a broken piece of particle board with their logo painted mm-hmm. on it, which is really cool. But, uh, they, they set up the room where, uh, you walk in, you put on your hard hat and your goggles and your gloves. And then on the wall, they have, it's kind of like hostel where you have like your torture implements on the wall, but it yeah. was, uh, for breaking things. And so we selected, you know, hammer and big like crowbar thing. And then you go in and there's, glasses and china and some speakers and electrical equipment and all this stuff and the guy's like oh right, you got 45 minutes just do your worst <laughs> so we were throwing mugs at each other like baseball pitches and shattering across the room dusting them wow. we'd uh the, i think the video i uh sent you was i stacked a, a bunch of fine china on top of this speaker and then just slammed it as hard as i could with a sledgehammer and just exploded everywhere it had this nice little uh <laughs> a little, little shrapnel wound on my nose where a piece of glass caught me. It was great. One yeah, of the that's, coolest that's, things I've done in a long time.
1: Yeah. I could totally get into that. Uh, I think you may have sent me a different video though. I think cause it was just two, uh, I think it was two girls. I'm assuming one of them was Melissa. Um, I didn't see you in the video you sent and they were just, Oh, maybe I'll town. have to share it. Yeah. They maybe I'll have uh, to
0: share it on the Instagram. Also,
1: whoever was on the left though was like on a mission. Like like it was their calling to just beat the shit out of that piece of wood on the ground um, with a baseball bat. That was my wife. Yeah, uh, I thought
0: that might have been her. uh, My brother-in-law, while we were watching, he leans over and goes, remind me to never piss her off. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) if I ever end up baseball batted into oblivion, you guys will all know I must have pissed Melissa off. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Awesome awesome holidays. And uh, by the way, happy new year. First show yep. of the new year.
1: That's right. Happy new year. Let's see. Uh, let's pretty see good stuff, can, buddy. Let's see if this one could be a little better than
0: 2021. I'm <laughs> wow. feeling optimistic. Don't hold your breath.
1: Yeah.
0: You ready to, uh, get into the off top? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So as a fellow extreme sports athlete and enthusiast, I'm sure you are familiar with the Shaka. The, yeah. Uh, Shaka bra. Iconic. One of the most iconic hand signals of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just shy of flipping someone off. It's probably one of the most instantly recognizable hand signals that you'll ever see. And uh, if for some reason you are not familiar with the shock of people out there in podcast land, I'll give you a little audio description. You can do this while you're driving, whatever. Uh, It's created by extending the pinky and the thumb in glorious fashion while the ring, middle and pointer fingers are closed And the signal is typically twisted back and forth in a waggly motion and generally thrown up by socially awkward people who don't know what to do with their hands. (laughs) It's basically skydive the hand signal, right? (laughs) So if you need uh, any further proof that awkward people tend to latch onto this signal, let me tell you a little story about a man named Shaka Doug. So are you a, uh, are you a scuba diver?
1: I actually, yeah, I'm certified um, as of like probably 15 years ago now. My last dive was probably like 12 years ago. So I don't know if that stands That's counts. right. Yeah.
0: I think I might have asked you that recently when I went scuba diving in the aquarium, but oh, yeah. this is another scuba diving story. I'm not certified to go scuba diving, but I think this might be one of the greatest scuba diving stories of all time, mainly because we survived. But uh, we were at uh, our good friend Mike Silva's wedding in Hawaii a few mm-hmm. years ago. And uh, Rusty, who has also appeared on this show, uh, the uh, the Tom Cruise episode. Yep. Uh, so Rusty and I were like, hey, let's go scuba diving. So we call around and there didn't seem to really be any resort diving anywhere on the island. And then at this gas station we we're just kind of inquiring hey you guys know where to do scuba diving and they're like yeah call this guy shock a doug <laughs> so we call him up and uh he sets up the appointment we show up at his house the next day and the first thing he says he comes out and he's like hey guys just so you know if we're out on the beach getting ready and someone tells us to get lost just tell him fuck you we got as much a right to be here as anyone else and rusty <laughs> and i look at each other and are like this might be the best or worst scuba diving trip of all time. And the whole thing just kind of reeked of uh, him trying to fly under the radar and not draw any uh-huh. attention to the fact that he was running a scuba diving operation. Yeah. So we we go out to the beach, no incidents, no one telling us to get lost. But as we walk out into the water, we crouch down. First thing that happens, we're all geared up. First thing that happens is uh, Rusty, his BCD, like we're all his hoses and everything are hooked up. As he submerges, it just starts spraying air. And we're like, oh my God, <laughs> Like instantly sprung a leak. So Shaka Doug goes back to the car to get some more hoses. And while he's gone, Rusty's girlfriend sits down in the water and she blows a gasket on hers. So when Shaka Doug gets back, we're like, "Uh, hey, guy, all of your stuff is breaking. So maybe fix that before we submerge and start breathing out of your regulated tanks. So then we are we're down swimming around these, uh, these coral reefs and Shaka Doug is down. Probably like 15 feet below us pointing at coral. And we look over at Rusty's girlfriend and we see that her tank sliding out of the sliding out of the the holder. And so we Uh grab her, like I hold onto her and Rusty puts the gear all back together. You know, we're probably like 20 feet down. And then Shaka Doug is just down there, like pointing at turtles or whatever. (laughs) So the whole time it's just gear just falling apart. And Shaka Doug is just so anti authority the whole time. He just doesn't have any respect for the fact that apparently they would taken away his license to operate a scuba diving operation on the Island. But what they didn't take away was his ability as a scuba instructor. So we finish up and the whole time we're just like, kind of out of the corner of our eye mocking Shaka Doug, because we, uh, we don't really buy into this guy's being a great scuba instructor. So we're leaving, we're getting ready to go. And he's like, Oh, where you guys staying? We tell him the hotel. And he goes, Oh, you should uh, check out the restaurant across the street. Tell him Shaka Doug sent you. <laughs> and uh, we absolutely did not do that because we <laughs> wanted to get our food. Right. So the, the reason I tell you that is because I just want to really drive home how the Shaka has infiltrated our culture and it's almost always adopted by awkward people but yeah. the history of the shaka so the, sh- the shaka likely grew in popularity across hawaii in the mid-20th century thanks in part to this used car salesman david Lippi espinda he was the the first to link the gesture to the word shaka and uh, as a uh he used it as a, shine, a sign off in his 1960s television ads. He'd throw up the shaka and then say, shaka brah, kind of like you did earlier. <laughs> and the combination of this type of public exposure and the shaka's link to the surfing community is most likely what spread it into the public consciousness. Now, the word shaka isn't actually Hawaiian in nature. I think that from what I found, they, they couldn't really uh, nail down the etymology of it, but it's most likely Japanese. And the true origin of the signal is actually pretty dark. So, according to this Atlas Obscura article, and even more specifically, a uh, Honolulu Star Bulletin article that they referenced, the story goes back about a century to a Hawaiian sugar plantation worker named Hamana Kalili. Now, Hamana Kalili's job on the plantation was feeding the sugarcane stalks into the rollers of a machine that would squeeze out the sugarcane's sweet, sweet juices. Mm, I know what this is. Yes. On a fateful day in or around the year 1917, Khalili's hand got caught in the rollers and mangled by the cold, heartless sugar-squeezing machinery, and he ended up losing his three middle fingers. Now, the company, uh, Kahuka Sugar, transferred him to a new job as a security guard, and... Being the apparently friendly guy with an unbreakable spirit that he was, he would jovially wave to people with his mangled hand, (laughs) inadvertently throwing up what was to become one of the world's most recognizable hand signals. So uh, Hawaiian plantation historian Mike Mauricio stated that there were most likely dozens of people back in this era with similar injuries since work on sugar plantations was unforgiving, dangerous, and most of the... uh, the brutalist jobs fell into the laps of indigenous workers, which brings to light the fact that there has never been a time in all of human history when plantation work was anything other than a total nightmare as Hmm. it's an industry that is predicated on subjugating oppressed populations into doing dangerous work for little to no pay. Just see early American history. Right. So many people have claimed that the origin of the Shaka can't easily be d- distilled down to a single story, and others have claimed that Hamonic Lily's story is merely apocryphal, nothing more than a legend. Mm. But I do love this story. I've been mocking the overuse of this hand signal for years, mainly because of its prevalence in skydiving. In, if you're jumping, just gl- glance around the jump plane anywhere in the world, right around the two-minute call, and you're guaranteed guaranteed to see the shocker flashed up all around you and uh, I know from here on out I'm guaranteed to see the ghost of mangled hands passed <laughs> anytime I witness oh, slightly man. uncomfortable people trying to express their casualness right before throwing their bodies out of an airplane
1: wow it's big in the surf surf community too obviously uh, that's yeah, where I th- saw the most of it
0: what is, is it this- just as awkward in surfing as it is in skydiving
1: <sighs> um no I don't think so Uh, to me, I attach it to the surfer bros, um, which may be inaccurate. Maybe they don't, I can't remember. It's it's hard. The surf culture kind of threw me for a loop a little bit when I first started hanging out with like hardcore surfers, they're a lot more aggro than I expected and just kind of dramatic. And there's a lot of drama in the scene, at least the one I was in, maybe I got into a a weird scene down
0: in Florida, but, um, I I, can't, I definitely experienced that too in California,
1: yeah, I, I would,
0: it. I would mostly just like surf whitewash, but yeah. a few times I went to an actual point break. Oh dude. Oh yeah. I was get on a point break. It was amazing that I didn't get beat up. Cause I, it was just like Johnny Utah. I had no, no right being out there and people would just run right over you.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I know, I, I can't remember if I see, uh, remember seeing them doing ironically or like just straight up, like they they were into it. I think they, I think they were into it. Um. I don't know.
0: I could have it backwards.
1: What does "shaka" mean? Is there a, a meaning for the word?
0: I don't know. Whenever I hear the word "shaka," all I can think of is "shaka dug." <laughs> well, yeah, I, I couldn't that, find learn. an actual an actual meaning. I mean, it, it seemed like from my research, it was even the you know the etymology of the word was unknown. So it just seems like it's used as a greeting or a farewell or a hang loose or a yeah. shaka bra maybe the reason it's not as awkward in surfing is because surfers are generally way cooler, quote unquote, than skydivers.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Skydiving is pretty
0: cool, but it, it definitely pulls some, uh, it pulls some people that are looking for themselves and trying to discover something, you know, that will make them interesting. And it, I think if people stick in the sport long enough, it eventually does create a very solid identity for people. But, I mean, I know in the beginning I was just about, like, the dorkiest, most awkward person ever. And it probably took 10 to 15 years of skydiving (laughs) for that to wear off.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I think a lot of the people I met uh, just getting started in skydiving when I was, had some kind of story that drew them to it. I remember this one guy I met in um, uh, Longmont uh, that uh, he was a, uh, he operated the machines that they use for quadruple heart bypasses um like he was one of the few guys that like really did these specialized machines and he was like super high, high anxiety he lived up in wyoming and he was coming down there to jump as like his release and like you could see the dude was like shaky all the time and like Whew. skydiving was his way to get past that for some reason but that was his draw and i heard a ton of stories like that his baby was the most intense but
0: god it. bless his aff instructors yeah yeah i I always found that, like in the, in the beginning, at least, cause I did a lot of AFF. I found that there were a few different types of people. There were people that were generally interested in skydiving. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was probably the smallest demographic. And then there were people that were thrill seekers, adrenaline junkies. And those were the most dangerous people. Yeah. And then there were people that were like searching for some sort of identity. And, yeah. you know, skydiving is such a, I don't, I feel like just doing one skydive is such a significant thing for a human because it goes against like almost all of your instincts Yeah. that it really does become the, the one story you tell to everybody. And that's why, you know, that's why in skydiving, you're supposed to, anytime you mention the word first, you're supposed to buy beer because nobody wants to hear your <laughs> first timer skydiving stories, unless they're drunk. Right. And, You know that kind of carries over into the real world too, where eventually all of your non skydiving friends just start disappearing because they're like, "Jesus Christ, all this guy ever does is talk about skydiving," and you know, eventually those people, if they stick with it long enough, it does become very significant part of their identity, and the shaka becomes the logo for that identity. I would say. Yeah, I buy that. That makes sense. I see that. Well, anytime you see the shaka, just think mangled hand wounds. (laughs) I will do. So what do you got on your content circuit?
1: Man, it's actually been um, a pretty good circuit for me lately. I've caught up on a decent amount of movies, got some books going. Uh I've kind of run through the list. Um, I finally watched Free Guy. Did you ever see that? The um I haven't, but I
0: keep hearing that it's really good.
1: I was yeah, I mean, I was intrigued by the concept. Just you know, he's an NPC and he's in this you get in this game and he finds out he's real and he's kind of conscious and stuff like that. And you know, where can they do with that story? And it's actually really good. Um, I think they did a really good job. Of it. it was fun. It was funny, obviously, and um, it was a good story. It was neat. So I, I get it's on Disney Plus. So
0: I'm gonna have to watch it.
1: Yep. So I Ooh, recommend nice. that one. The
0: highest ranking this show <laughs> provides. Yeah. Um, caught
1: Don't, Don't Look Up." Have you seen that yet? Ah oh, No, but it also looks amazing. Man, you're I, like spitting hot fire right now. Yeah, man. Uh, I also really enjoyed that one. I thought it was, uh, in a way, it reminded me of like a, a fresh version of Idiocracy um, without as, really? without being as, as wild. I mean, it's a satire for sure. Um, apparently, it ruffled a few feathers out there in the, the Twitter sphere between the, the strong right and the strong left. Um,
0: Means it's probably good.
1: Yeah, I thought it was pretty entertaining. Um, so I give that one also three thumbs up. Um, the highest score that this show provides—that's <laughs> two. Wow. The rest of mine um, actually—they're pretty good. I'll just—I'll kind of breeze through a few. Um, have you ever heard of the book called Station Eleven?
0: No, is that uh, it's like a, sci-fi? Yeah, it's a sci-
1: sci-fi, um, but it's—it's it's more of a post-apocalyptic sort of. It's—it's uh, it's barely sci-fi. It's just like. Uh, a post-apocalyptic uh, story up in, I believe, Michigan. Um, this, I can't remember what happened to the world, but um, it's like 20 years later, and there's just a few people left. Most people are dead. I think it was a virus, actually. Yeah, It was a pandemic, wiped out society, and there's a few people left. And this you know, they're traveling around. It's kind of like Walking Dead. It's just groups of people and the kind of stories they go through. Well, the um, they actually turned... So Heather and I listened to that on one of our road trips and really enjoyed it. And they turned it into a uh, a series. Now it's on. It must be HBO because it's only coming out one episode at a time. We started watching that, and that's actually looking pretty good. Uh, it's been good so oh, far. Oh, man.
0: I just got HBO Max. I'm going to check that out, too.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, it's definitely a recommend. Um, let's see here. We caught that Harry Potter reunion thing a couple days ago. Uh, I was never a big Harry Potter person. Heather kind of got me into the movies. I never read the books, but it was a good, neat little reunion. I, I was a huge fan of the Harry Potter uh, at Universal down in uh, Orlando. Um, that place is awesome.
0: That. I really loved the books. I wasn't into the movies, but I read the books when I was in college. and mm-hmm. there's something about, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but there's just there's something about training stories where it's like you go off to complete some sort of grueling training and some uh, obscure, some obscure topic. And Harry Potter's like perfectly fits into that vibe, you know, that drop yeah. him into wizarding school. Mm-hmm. I was just like totally fascinated by that idea. So I really like the books, but I don't know. I think the movies I was when they came out I was a little bit too old for him at that point. Got it. Um
1: I got a bunch of others. I won't really go into all of them. Um, there's a couple more though. Oh, this but speaking of Harry Potter, I was just thinking of this. You ever seen a show called The Magicians? ever heard of that? No, uh, I don't remember what it was on. There's been three or four seasons. Heather and I freaking love that show. It was a uh, best way to probably describe it is uh, Harry Potter, except for everybody. It's a college age group, and there's a lot of sex and alcohol and drugs. Um, nice, it's, three it was, good it was, things. It was really well done, and uh, it's it's almost a mix between like a magic and fantasy. It was a little bit even more fantasy uh, than uh, than you might see in Harry Potter. Definitely recommend on that one.
0: Is that uh, a show, a, a series? Yeah,
1: yeah there, I think there's three or four seasons now. Really well done. Um, great production quality, so it's definitely a recommend. Uh, cool. We, we caught Miley's New Year's Eve special with Miley Cyrus. And, <laughs> I actually and, watched and part of that Pete also. Davidson. Pete I had, Davidson. I have, I'm a big <laughs> Pete Davidson fan. and I I mean, I have no, I like <laughs> He's <Miley> awesome. Too. <laughs> but the, the show was kind of lackluster, I think, and didn't really do it for me, but we still watched it.
0: Yeah, Miley Cyrus didn't perform "Heart of Glass," which is the only song of hers that I like, and it's a cover. So maybe I'll tell you something about <laughs> what I how I feel about Miley Cyrus's music. Yeah. But uh, I was bummed that, that that didn't show up.
1: Something else showed up briefly. Her yeah? boobs. Yeah. Actually, I, I don't did know. not see that part. I looked away, and then the next thing I looked back, and like she's running off stage because her top fell
0: off. I did see that actually. They didn't you didn't get to see anything, but it, it, there was like a. I, I know what you're talking about. There was like a emergency wardrobe change right in the yeah. middle. And then the backup singers just started singing for her while she was off stage. I thought they handled it well. Yeah. The show must go on. <laughs> but um, the last one I'll bring up,
1: I think will be a good transition. Cause I know you've seen this one. Uh, and that would be the the new
0: matrix. Uh, Resurrection. Indeed, I, I did watch that one. What'd you think? You're the resident Keanu expert and uh, well, lover.
1: Yeah, I mean that's fair, that's a fair assessment. I um I came into it and the first bit of it I was, so I, was I was worried about what the, what the actual premise was going to be for this fourth one. Like kind of what the the overall plot was going to be. And when they started getting into it, uh, I actually dug it. I, I liked where they were going with the whole video game stuff and everything like that. And I was like, "All right, I'm I'm into the start. Um, now let us this ramp it up into, you know, some some good action and some you know just, just really work work through this story and this plot and give me a good ending, and to me it just kind of fizzled. Um, uh, it just uh, there just wasn't enough meat and it there just wasn't enough to it to me. Um, it didn't really tell a super compelling story yet. But like I said, I mean, I liked where they were kind of going with the concept, and it just kind of didn't get there for me. And I'm not sure why that would have happened, but that's kind of how I felt. It was a here.
0: little bit of a rehash. And uh, I I think I agree I I came away thinking like I, I would give it like one and a half thumbs up, uh yeah. one, uh one Khalili thumb if you will <laughs> mangled thumb, so one it. I liked exactly I liked the beginning, like you said, and I liked the callbacks that they had, but I did feel like the story once all the Matrix stuff started happening was a little lackluster, and I think it would have. Yeah, I mean, the first Matrix just set such a precedent right. for awesome movies. Even its immediate follow on sequels couldn't even come close to living up to it. Yeah. Because it was just such a perfect movie and it was everything about it was so original and it was such a fresh take on sci fi that when they got into the second, third movie and it just became more Matrix physics with questionable CGI and then they kind of stepped away from the philosophical side and it was just kind of like a traditional action movie, especially the third one. You know, like I felt like it's been kind of a downward plunge ever since the first movie. Yeah. But this, you know, uh, resurrections, I felt like it started to go back up, but it would never quite reach the heights of the original film. Like not even close. Yep. Yep. That's a pretty good content circuit, man. That's, uh, that sounds like the amount of content I typically consume in three days. So left out stretching left it out left over a few days. weeks, yeah, kind of weak. That's true. Yeah.
1: What about you? What you got?
0: Uh, so I've been on total Spider-Man kick lately. So I got a PS5 for Christmas, which are they're almost impossible to find. And my uh, mother-in-law performs some sort of wizardry to find mm-hmm. one. And so I was like totally blown away that they gave me one of those, Sweet. and uh, they gave me the Miles Morales game. So I've been playing through that, and it's just it's just one of the coolest games ever. It totally empowers you to feel like Spider Man, and uh, my daughter Isla and I have been playing that. She's kind of learning to play games, and we use that as a warm up to go see Spider Man Far From Home Ooh, or No Way Home, the new yeah. one. Have you seen that yet? I have not. Man, it in my opinion, the greatest cinematic moment in history wow is the last 40 minutes of that movie it's just the greatest thing i've ever seen up on the silver screen and I would, i'm not going to go into anything about it but i would yeah. just highly recommend everybody see it especially if you're a spider-man fan if you've been on spider-man kick for the last 20 years however long those movies have been coming out like it's just it's just great it does everything you ever wanted awesome. and uh That, and then I've just been playing through various PS5 games and uh, just kind of trying out that new technology. I did want to amend – oh, about the PS5?
1: Yeah. How do you feel?
0: More powerful than my home PC that I built to play VR on. It's just so incredible. And what's cool about PlayStation – I don't know if you're a PlayStation guy, but PlayStation (coughs) has all of – Yeah, I have an Xbox also, and I use it for playing uh, multiplayer games. But the PlayStation has just—they always have the best exclusives. Like Spider-Man is an exclusive, and they just do so many cool things with their controller technology and the Rumble, uh, the Rumble tech that's built into it. the The controllers have, or the uh, triggers have adaptive trigger pulls. So like if Mm. you're shooting a certain kind of gun, it'll like be stiff, and then it'll be like a trigger break, which is something that has never existed before. It just really ties you to the game. So, yeah, I'd give the PlayStation 5 my three thumbs up, and then we'll bring Brett in here and give him, (laughs) he'll give it a thumbs up as well, and then uh, whatever you want to give. I'm giving three all for myself. Excellent. Cool. So good. I I want to amend something that I said a few weeks ago when I was talking about Fear the Walking Dead, though, and saying that I felt like it was a more realistic take on The Walking Dead. Uh Uh-huh. Once I got past season three, I just caught up to current times. Uh, we watched all six up, uh, all six seasons, and now we're up to se- season seven, which is playing in real time. Once I got past season three, I realized, man, this show has some seriously whack shit going on. Just half the time I'm watching, I'm just like, this is most ridiculous scenario I've ever seen. But we're just walking dead junkies, so we're watching anyways. It's kind of like how heroin works. You know it's not good for you, but you <laughs> yeah. do it anyways. Right.
1: Yep, same same response in the brain, I believe. All about that <laughs>
0: Yep, exactly. Hijack your limbic system. All right, well uh that was great, man. Let's take a quick break and then when we come back, I can't wait to hear what kind of content we're getting into. Who content? Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Nick, I love your content, buddy. Can't wait to hear what you got today.
1: Yeah, all right. So, um We'll start by playing a little sort of game, I guess. Um, Or, you know, we like to start with questions and stuff. This time I'm going to start by listing three words. uh, I guess technically an acronym and two words. And I want to tell you, I want you to tell me if there's any context or arrangement uh, in which these three words make sense together. Ready? Ready? Ready. BBS, door, and games. Does that mean anything to you in any arrangement?
0: absolutely not but I can't wait to hear <laughs> what
1: it means <laughs> all right so the correct arrangement is actually BBS door games um, which are a very old-school type of computer game that I used to be really into um,
0: you made that really easy on me I still didn't get it
1: <laughs> yeah I figured that was gonna be the case um, so for me this is actually gonna be an opportunity to kind of experience a, a bit of nostalgia um, talking about this and these games in the simpler times and for us um, in the end, I think it'll be a chance to, to ruminate on what actually makes a game good. Um, but first, I suspect a bit of a history lesson uh, is needed for those who didn't spend their early teenage years as a hardcore computer nerd in the mid-90s like I did. So, have Indeed. you ever heard... Do you know what BBS is or a BBS is? Have you ever heard that term? No. Okay. It stands for uh, Bulletin Board System. And mm, these yeah. were uh, computer servers, uh, generally run by like a, a single computer nerd out of the garage that allows users to connect to them uh, with a dial-up modem. Um, the server would have some software on it uh, that would let other users log in and perform a variety of functions, such as uploading and downloading software and data, uh, reading news and bulletins, exchanging messages on a bulletin board, that's where they get their name, and uh, a few other things. And in many ways, they were a precursor to the modern form of the World Wide Web, social networks, and other aspects of the internet. Um, So they performed a lot of the things you would do on the internet now, except for it was just a single server sent to some dude's house that only one person can connect to at a time. Some cases they would have multiple uh, lines connected to them. them, So multiple, like two or three
0: people could be on at the same time and you could do chat and stuff like that. Um, but serve a lot of same functions as the internet and social media, except not tearing our country apart with (laughs) political bullshit. Like all those things do today.
1: Right. And I think, uh, there was definitely some stuff, wild stuff on there. I think they would have. I think what was missing is the network effect. It's just uh, mm-hmm. the groups on them were so small, the reach you had on them was so small. There was I definitely saw some wild stuff on it back in the day.
0: Um, yeah, once you aggregate it all, and it's just uh, millions of users, you start to get shaka style people coming out of the woodworks that that's right. just don't know how to interact with humanity on a personal basis. And that's where you get I mean, all the bullshit can, that we associate with the internet today. Anyone
1: can have an audience of millions um, without any real effort. Um, so the, another thing they had uh, on a more games and they were called door games. Um, and the reason they're called door games is they were actually separate programs that would run on this, the
0: computer and
1: the the BBS would quote unquote, open a door to that game.
0: Um, like when you mentioned BBS door games, I was like, mm-hmm. I know a door and games work. The BBS is was, was throwing me off. Yeah. I'll make sense now.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, so the hate, uh, like I was kind of saying the heyday of the BBSs were, uh, in the early and mid nineties, they kind of probably started going early eighties. Um, and this is the period of time when I discovered them as a young, uh, teen computer nerd. Uh, I saw one article that estimated about 60,000 BBSs or out, uh, we're in the United States in 94. Uh, that seems a bit high to me. Um, cause that would be, I don't know, like 1, per, a thousand per little or a thousand per state on average. And all oh, uh, user generated, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean this, yeah, this is, there were, there were probably a, a handful of commercial ones that were bigger, but most of these just like hobbyists that, you know, had some software, had a line and would just just run it for fun. Um, but, uh, back in, back when I was on them you could find lists of like all the local ones in your area cuz this is pre free long distance and anything so you would only be dialing into ones in your area code or zip code, or yeah, area code and I was in the Atlanta area which is a pretty big metropolitan area and I want to say the lists I had were only like 100 150 so 60,000 seems a bit high to me but I'm sure there was a good was a good bit of them. um let's see here so oh yeah so what they, they kind of abruptly disappeared, and that's because they were essentially crushed by uh services like AOL and CompuServe because you could think about those as really just scaled up versions of BBS's with you know proprietary software. Um, did you have a dial up modem back in those days? Did you get on AOL, CompuServe, or any of that stuff?
0: Oh, yeah, we had so many AOL discs, they were just coasters and we'd throw <laughs> them at each other, oh, Ninja yeah. Stars. <laughs> yeah, we uh, I don't know what year we got online, if you will probably mm-hmm. 95 or something, you know, it's, uh, that's probably around the time that we had internet in our house. My dad worked for, uh, uh, in the telecom industry. So once it was like commercially viable mm-hmm. and we could afford it, we got, we had a modem.
1: Yeah. it's kind of the same story for me. My dad was, uh, oh. he worked for at and and Lucent and all that stuff. And he would actually be able to bring home some old equipment that, uh, didn't uh, you know it was broken or something? We it was still usable, mm-hmm. and that's how we kind of got a lot of our stuff. Had some really hardcore computers mm-hmm. back then, and we got all the modems and stuff. And that's definitely what got oh, me. That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. Um, so yeah, I was I was a heavy BBS user for AOL came around, and then um, I was an AOL hacker for a little while. Um, you could just with a couple of little programs you, that I found on the BBSs, you could uh, basically get mm-hmm. into the admin side of AOL and do p- pretty much whatever you wanted, um, steal anybody's account use people's credit cards and stuff like that. So that was, uh,
0: you know, maybe don't incriminate yourself too much.
1: Uh, what's the statute of uh, limitations on that? I don't know. I feel like it's been 30 something <laughs> sure years. Sure. It's now. run out. Or 20 something it's years. an
0: entire century ago. No,
1: honestly, I'd probably didn't do anything worse than just like stealing some time on AOL for free. Um, so it was, I mean, there really wasn't a whole lot you could do. It was just, you felt, you know, I'm mid teenager. I felt like a hacker. Well, I wasn't really doing much of anything. There was a phone freaker. Totally. There was a, uh, little side story, anecdote. Um, there were a few programs that everybody would get their hands on that, that just basically backed towards you into the AOL program. And there was one of them called AOL. AOL was like the most popular one. And I, I kind of copied the code for that one and built my own stuff at some point. But that was uh, my first year in college. I was in class one day and I was talking to this guy. And I found out he was the writer of AOL. And I was oh, like, wow, nice. You're, you're a fucking legend, dude. And like, this is 98 or 99, right at the dot-com boom. And he was, you know, he was straight up nerd, but like sort of a cocky kind of arrogant sort of, he knows he's a badass nerd. And he left yeah. school and like that first year went out to San Francisco because they gave him a car and a job and stuff like at some dot com place. I have no idea what ever happened to that guy, but that was kind of interesting. Meeting the.
0: I mean, I meeting. bet once word got out, that he wrote A.O. Hell. Yeah, he was like a hot commodity because there probably weren't a whole lot of highly skilled operators doing that kind of stuff in the nascent days of the internet.
1: Yep. Yeah. Actually, my, uh, my first touch of the real internet was through BBSs too. Um, they got a little more powerful as they grew over the years. And the, there was a pretty good one in my town that had an quote unquote internet connection. It was connected to more networks and more computers. And back then you could browse the web on a text based uh, browser called links. So it's, you know, it's all text. There's no graphics or anything. That was my first taste of the web. Um, it's come a long way since then. Um, Big time. Let's see here. Yeah, I was going to, so I had a little bit here about how, I, I don't remember how I actually found it. I wish I knew how I found the first BBS. Like, cause you know, you have a modem, but until you connect to something, you don't know, how, you know, how to, I, I know how I found the rest of them. Once I got on the first one, I found a list of other ones and you start dialing around. Um, opens the floodgates. Yeah, it yeah. must've
0: been a, a totally random stumble
1: to get I on think, the first one. Now that I think about it, it may have been, there were like tech magazines and I want to say it couldn't have been something like as national as wired. There must've been something local or something I saw that just had like an ad, a classify in the back for like, here's your local BPS, or maybe it was um, I don't know, but it had to have been something like that. Um, but man, when I first got on those, it was, it was like opening a whole new world. Um, connecting someone's else's computer with these magic mm-hmm. phone sounds, um, just open up this mm-hmm. whole – I mean I felt like, I, I don't know, something out of some uh cyberpunk book or something where I'm just like all of a sudden I'm connecting all these things. I'm going through these other people's computers, and it was a whole it was just a whole different world. It was really awesome. Um, Isn't it
0: amazing how our standards change like in <laughs> the early days? Just the fact that you were able to open up it up and see words on somebody else's computer seemed like the most amazing thing that's ever happened, and now you're like – Where's right. all the porn on your website? <laughs> if your website isn't full of porn, why would I even bother visiting it?
1: Yep. And there was definitely porn on those sites, on the BBSs, and Wares. So I would started my pirating career on there. Uh, I didn't really get too much into the actual messaging and social aspect of it. Um, I was more of a lurker. And then I discovered the games. And so that's what we'll talk about today is some of the games, um, in particular a couple of them that, really, uh, that I really got into and that stuck with me and that. But actually what got me thinking about this piece is I ran across an article on one of those games, I don't know, a couple months ago, and it kind of brought back all this flood of nostalgia and memories about how much fun I had playing these games. So I figured we'd talk about those a little bit, and then maybe we'll talk about what actually makes a game fun, because these these games are just
0: text. That's all it is. Um, That is interesting. This is something I might actually have some insight on, because I've been playing video games for... 30 something years now.
1: <laughs> I thought you might have some. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Let's talk about. Uh, so, yeah, there were. Let's talk about the games and stuff a little bit. So, most of them, I mean, everything is tech based, text based. Um, though uh, with text, you can kind of draw some rudimentary graphics kind of things. Um, especially if you use colored little blobs and stuff, you can draw what's called ASCII art. Um, yeah, of course. Super 8 eight-bit looking kind of classic. Graphics. But these these are like, you know, super low refresh rate. It's more of like still images of ASCII art. There's there's no real movement around these. A couple games had some kind of rudimentary kind of uh, overhead sort of Zelda looking kind of you know navigate your way through like a dungeon or something kind of style. But for the most part, all the games were just uh, navigating through text and they tell you stories. It's almost like a choose your adventure in some cases um, with just a lot more complexity. Um, some of the classic games, um, if you were to kind of go look at the list, and there were probably hundreds of these, but some of the biggest names were games called Trade Wars, Global War, Pimp Wars. Um, so wars are a big thing. <laughs> uh, Baron Realms Elite, Legend of the Red Dragon, Usurper, Freshwater Fishing Simulator, and Food Fight. Um,
0: Ooh, I can't imagine how fun a text-based fishing simulator would be. Yeah, I
1: actually hadn't heard of that one until I was kind of starting to do the research on this one. So I missed that one. I probably had seen it in the menu. I was like, well, you know, I'm going to skip that one. Um, but uh, yeah, so of all these choices, there were two uh, that really grabbed a hold of me. One was called uh, Baron Realms Elite, uh, also known as BRE. And the other one was Legend of the Red Dragon, also known as Lord. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about these games, and then we can kind of... Or these games in particular, and then we can kind of ruminate on what uh, what makes a game good. Um, so BRE uh, was a turn-based strategy game. So uh, it, it was essentially... Well... It's setting the setting. The story behind the game was you're you're in the post-apocalyptic future. Uh, nuclear destruction has spread across the planet, and now only a vast, vast barren void exists. The player rules a barony and competes against other players to become the strongest baron on the planet. So each day you can log into the server and take a dozen turns or so, uh, building an empire by collecting resources, building out your military and covert ops, uh, making alliances and making war with other players. Each
0: turn. Oh, so you're was, actually playing other people on the bulletin board. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's, um, that's, that was, I mean, these are my first revolutionary. Games. Yeah. I mean, that was prior to this, every game I had ever played was physically with someone in my space, you know, like there was no reaching out over the, the magic of these magic phone sounds and, and, and playing with someone I didn't even know. This is the first. That's
0: kinda. very significant. Yeah. So we're, we're all of the BBS door games were they all multiplayer or could uh, you get no. some single player stuff? No, too? there
1: was some single player stuff but the only ones that ever really interested me were the, the multiplayer ones. Um, is that yeah, I mean that's
0: the revolutionary you
1: know that. idea. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in this game uh, you, like I said, you get a few turns of, quote unquote turns a day. Uh, each turn consisted of running through a script of options uh, allowing you to do things like purchase resources, grow your realms, land tax and feed your populace. Uh, they had basic banking, uh, inter-realm trading, so you could make trades with other um, bear, realms, um, signing treaties. Uh, you, can, you can join up with other players, um, sending out covert ops to destabilize your opponents, um, and all of this done was just done with a keyboard and a textual menu system. So it would it would loop through like you know all the options like do your banking, do your realm building, do your trade trading, and all that stuff, and you'd have like a dozen turns a day, and then you'd wait. Um, so you' you know it's it's a lot like any other strategy game these days where you're just trying to build your resources and things like that
0: and that one yeah it sounds um, like a real-time strategy game just yeah choose your adventure text-based version
1: yep that's exactly what it was um there was another one that may now that I think about it it may have been the one I was really more into it called solar realms elite which was uh more basically the same thing but in space because I no no i think I, I think I remember more doing like space battle stuff and land battle stuff. But for some reason, BRE, that, that, name stuck out in my head. Um, in my research, I did see that. So all these games too were, I mean, these aren't like game studios or anything. There's just like people as hobbyists writing these games. And some of them got popular and some of them didn't. Um, I didn't how many
0: careers those launched.
1: I'm sure some people got a good starts in this. Um, I'm sure, sure. Some didn't <laughs> the, uh, Solar Realms Elite and SRE and BRE are actually written by brothers, two brothers. I read that. Um, BRE was uh, just basically a copy of SRE. Did you ever – did you have a – this is a total tangent. Did you – back in high school, did you guys use TI calculators, like the sort of fancier graphing calculators?
0: There were people that were in, like, higher-level math classes that all had to have them. Uh, I was never in those classes. Oh, that was not my strong suit. <laughs> too Fair busy day. skateboarding and throwing up the shaka.
1: Well, that just reminded me, especially Pimp Wars. So, on those on those calculators, you could program little basic programs. And I remember all we would do with the one that was uh, pass around different versions of Pimp Wars that were on the calculator. So, we would sit in class and nice. play. Nice. Or, no, we had Drug Wars. Yeah. You, pretended you, were, you basically did a text based uh, uh, drug dealer simulation on your calculator during class. It was awesome. Those teachers Anyways.
0: didn't know what they were unleashing on the class when they gave you guys mini computers in your pockets. And they were like, man, these kids
1: love calculating.
0: <laughs> they love calculating. Look at them go.
1: <laughs> All right, so the other game um, that I was really into, uh, which was Legend of the Red Dragon, or Lord, it was a text-based role-playing game. Um, the premise of Lord is that a red dragon is wreaking havoc in a town where uh, the player has recently arrived. Multiple players compete over a period of weeks to advance their skill and kill the dragon. In order to achieve this goal, players must face combat to gain experience. Once they have gained enough experience, they must face the master Turgen's, in Turgan's warrior training to advance the skill level. Advancement increases the player's fighting stats and gives an additional skill point in the sc- uh, current skill. Uh, advancing, advancement also prevents stronger enemies and masters. A player must challenge and defeat Master Turgun himself to reach level twelve, the final level, before attempting to search and search for and slay the dragon. Um, so like BRE, you played the game through a series of text menus. Uh, unlike BRE, you could move around in the game in a uh, nonlinear fashion instead of just, you know, that script that you ran through each turn. Um, it had all the standard RPG tropes. Uh, you could pick your skill class to start with, uh, Death Knight skills, Mythical skills, mythical skills or mystical skills, uh, theming skills, and eventually you actually had to master all three. You could go to the forest and slay random, random creatures to level up. You could fight other players. Uh, there was an inn, there was a bar, there was a bank. You could do inn, bar, and bank things at. Um, and there was actually one unique set of uh, gameplay features to this game that I haven't really seen since. Um, every day, a player can send a flirt to another character, uh, which may range from a shy wink to sex to a marriage proposal. Um, in the game, sex <laughs> so may.
0: Sex is a flirt back in
1: the early internet days, huh? Well, no, no. You could send a. What? You could send a week. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can see what you're saying. And, uh, the world has changed. Y- yes, it has. Um, in the game, um, if you had sex with another, another player, um, you could actually contract STDs, and female characters could become pregnant. Um, Uh-oh. And, uh oh. And if you didn't have. You know, possibly a female character on your bulletin board uh, to flirt with. You could uh, f- flirt with Mary and have sex with the bar staff um, in the in the bar in the game.
0: I imagine that the uh, female players were few and far between back in the day.
1: Yeah, I don't recall a single one. That's why I, I didn't uh, fully remember that feature until I started digging into the history of it again.
0: Um, I can't imagine them being treated much better then than they are now, which is a real shame with the gaming industry. I mean, like girls online are just like immediately ridiculed if they're playing some sort of competitive game, which is, I don't even get it. Such a, it's, it's ridiculous. It's also such a shot in the foot for the people that are into video games because you know, in the real world, they'd be more than delighted if a female is paying them any kind of attention. And, uh, you know, it's just, they instantly drive girls away on games. I've seen, I saw a video recently on Twitter of some girl playing Halo and she's like some popular streamer and just getting like cussed out and telling people, Oh, or people telling her, Oh, halo in your game. You know, just, (laughs) this is a, this is a lobby for leets. It's just so ridiculous. It's just such a self-defeating attitude.
1: Yeah. I never really understood that to be honest. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, to give you uh, just an idea of how well these games would do um, financially, I don't know how much they were sold for, but the first year, apparently, uh, Legend of the Red Dragon Lord came out. It sold seven copies. Um, but supposedly, <laughs> uh, uh, over the next, uh, I don't know, three or uh, next seven years, uh, it sold thirty thousand copies. So, I mean, if the guys, did if he, you know if he was selling ten bucks a pop or something, he made three hundred grand on that. It's not bad for just a tech-based choose-your-own-adventure. Um, with some sex
0: added in, kind of simple game, or a flirt, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's. I imagine probably the hardest part about the entire uh, the entire market was just people finding them in the first place. People adopting this technology early on. because yeah. you know it's not like it's not like it's today where internet is a basic human right. Essentially, you know, right. you had to be a Nick Underwood to be on this stuff that early. It'd be some sort of tech guru.
1: Yeah, it was a different time for sure. Um anyways, that was uh you know, for me that was a great trip down memory lane. But as a professional contentologist, I'm required to bring more to the plate than just fond memories of esoteric nerdery. So when I first started thinking about although that piece,
0: is seventy percent of the job.
1: <laughs> right. But you gotta put a little little bit of pizzazz on the end. Um little on stank on it? Yeah. So when I first started thinking about this piece, um, I didn't come to it with any angle except for, you know, I just wanted to relive this past a little bit and reminisce. And as I started digging back into them, I maybe started thinking about what actually makes a good game. I mean, I I full on love these games, uh, yet they were incredibly simple and super basic. Uh, The first thing I would do when I came home from school is log in and play my terms for the day on the games. And um, if I was up past midnight, I could maybe get my next turn in. Um, and I was starting to wonder, you know, how could these free games um, that were played completely by navigating text-based menus uh, be so compelling when, you know, even back then there were much premium, much more premium options available. So, you know, you know that's what started, started me thinking, that what is required for a game to be good? Um, instead of really thinking my way through this, I just Googled that question, um, what is required for a game to be good? And I feel pretty good about the first link I found. Um, listed uh, four traits of what makes a good game. I figured kind of go through those a little bit, um, maybe have a little discussion on each one, and kind of talk about how they applied to the those two games, Bre and Lord, and then maybe wrap it up with a little deeper discussion. But the uh, so I'll list the, the traits first, and I'll go into them a little bit more. Um, but the four four traits listed there were continuous challenges, uh, interesting storyline flexibility, and immediate useful rewards. So the first one, Continuous Challenges, is basically just having clear uh, short-term goals appropriate to the level of the player and the context within the game. Uh, this is what keeps you hooked and coming back from more. Uh, you know, and it's important to find the right balance for each challenge. Not too hard. Uh, not too easy. And, it's the gameplay loop. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is the bread and butter for turn-based strategy games and RPGs. This is essentially what they're built on, with these, you know, continuing challenges that grow as you, as you grow, as your character grows. And I think uh, both those games I was talking about actually executed those perfectly. They give you just enough um, in the amount of turns you could run during the day to level up just enough and wanting you just to be able to, you're, you know, you're almost right at that next level and you're ready to keep going, but your turn's over for the day. And that was kind of unique to these games, too, is that you can only play it so much per day. Um, that that couldn't fly in today's games, I don't think. Now that I think oh, about
0: it. no, that is antithetical <laughs> to game design of... yeah the 21st century.
1: So I, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that during the research when I was kind of writing this stuff up, but I, I bet that was a part of it. It's just, it's
0: keeping you waiting, leaving you waiting for more. And you can just kind of think about it instead of just playing and playing I, and playing. I mean, that plays on, uh, I mean, that, that's like pretty high level psychology of playing on anticipation being something that makes fun, fun. I, I know that if I'm going on a skydiving trip or something, Man, almost the anticipation thinking mm-hmm. about going and doing the thing is as much or more fun than actually doing it because when you're doing it you're just you know you're in the moment but you realize that th- that moment is fleeting and it's just like right every second you're out having fun you're burning up that that experience and uh when you're just anticipating it's it's like reading you know it's yeah looking at a looking at words on a page and hallucinating it's kind of the same thing when you're imagining what you're going to do and you're planning out you're getting all your equipment ready that's all just like it's such a, a mind game and that's really interesting that they tapped into that right at the beginning and that I mean that's a that's a part of gameplay that's kind of completely eliminated from games of today there is no anticipation playing a video game I mean, I remember when I was a kid, one of the funnest things about having a game was getting it. Going to the store, going to Toys R Us, looking at all the games, buying it, reading the book on the way home, hoping you'd made the right choice. And that's something that's completely absent from gaming today.
1: That's a good point, yeah. That that feeling was awesome back then. Actually having to go to the store to get those things, yeah. I totally agree with that. Well, uh, so the uh, second um, of the traits I found and uh, this list was uh, the interesting storyline. Um, this may not always be necessary, especially for like head to head games. It's, it's really about the combat, you know, player versus player. Uh, but for strategy and RPG games, uh, I think an interesting storyline is required for the game itself to be compelling. Um, for BRE, Baron Realms Elite, the setup uh, was really the story. You're a Baron in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. You want to build your empire. Uh, competing with other realms. And after that, the story pretty much writes itself. So you're basically writing the story as you compete against these players, the other players. I know one thing I didn't mention is um, most of the BBSs, they were, you could just play against you know the other players that dialed into that BBS. Um, but eventually some of them started linking up connections to each other. So you could play, your BBS could play against other BBSs and you could have you know uh, leagues and different uh, different levels of gameplay against different kind of um, players just amounts of people that got really cool.
0: yeah um, it really—they were really laying the groundwork for online multiplayer. That's yeah. you can see a lot of the same uh, same threads like pulled out to today.
1: Yep. And then for uh, Lord Legend of the Red Dragon, uh, it tells you the story up front. There's a dragon ravaging the lands, and a hero needs to come along and slay it. Um, classic and then, setup. Yeah. And then it fills up, uh, you're leveling up with all the classic tropes from me- medieval times like magic, thievery, inns, bars, scary things in the forest, and even uh, STDs, I guess. Um, the third kind of trait they listed for a good game is flexibility. And so this is, uh, you want to make sure there are multiple ways, many ways to accomplish each goal. Um, simply plotting out the step by step progression um, through the game basically takes away the feeling of agency. So, I mean, if you're just playing a game and it has a storyline that's rigid, linear, you know, it gets boring pretty quick. And um, even for uh, BRE, uh, while you do follow the same script every single turn, um, accomplish your goals of domination can take any path you want, because each turn you're kind of choosing, you know, do I want to focus more on my military or my realms or my diplomacy? And, you know, you can go, go totally different ways and, um, Landed, you know, land in the same place through a bunch of different routes. For Lord, um, it's the same. Um, as, but they need a decent RPG. Uh, there are endless routes you can take to reach your ultimate goals.
0: And then, and that's, uh, I mean, that's highly prevalent today too. Like the open world game is one of the, one of the most popular styles of game now, and that's that's nothing but flexibility. I mean, think of something yep. like GTA V, which is. Essentially, just an open sandbox, especially in the multiplayer, where you can go and do story missions and do you know objectives, or you can do what I do and just try to buy the most awesome planes and just do plane stunts for hours on end. You know, there's like no, there's no limit with an open world game, and I mean, there's like an entire class of games that are like the the greatest games to live in, and you know, GTA Five is one of those. And I've been experiencing that when I play in the Spider-Man game where it's just the uh, the realization of the New York that they built. It's just – it's so awe-inspiring that half the fun of that game is just getting to a really high point and then just perching up and looking out over the city and realizing, wow, I can go any any one of these places. Mm. And they're all like realized storefronts and there's yeah. custom signs and pedestrians everywhere. It's just the games of today are just so cool just to have on the screen and just hang out in. Yeah. And that's like, you know, ultimate
1: flexibility. Yeah. That's what I loved about the original assassin creeds. Um, getting up on the, Did you ever play those? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Getting up on the the high ledges and just kind of looking down at the cities. That was, that was really cool.
0: And Um, realizing like, Oh, I can actually go there or something like, uh, legend of Zelda breath of the wild where you can look out just the draw distance is incredible, and you look out, you see a mountain, and you realize like, oh, I can actually, I can spend a couple of hours yeah. riding out that way and then climbing that mountain. It's incredible.
1: And this has nothing to do with where we're going, but I'm just going to go out and say, Zelda Breath of the Wild. I'm going to give it a new rating. I'm going to give it three shaka bras, because that, <laughs> oh, that game. Oh
0: man, that God, game, that's like six fingers.
1: <laughs> and and. I guess uh, nine mangled stumps, but exactly.
0: Don't forget that. Never forget the ghost fingers.
1: That was an incredible game. Um, And then just real quick, the last one uh, on their list, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list or breakdown of what makes a game uh, good, but I think it was a good kind of high level approach to it uh, is immediate useful rewards. So this is earning something rather than just points uh, that can be used to further your goals. So, for turn-based strategy games and RPGs uh, like BRE and Lord, uh, this is an inherent component. Um, there's probably a balance to be achieved there, um, but you know, leveling up your character and your realm um, with things that you can then use for the next turns uh, is, is pretty much a requirement for these type of games. Um, now, did you notice something that is often a highly talked about piece of a game that wasn't on the list anything graphics graphics yes oh I, I wrote right here yes that's right high quality graphics because <laughs> i, I feeling, nailed it Bad <laughs> feeling you might get that one um well hell, these uh these games i'm talking about basically have no graphics i mean literally it's all just text and uh kind of what you were allus- alluding to before when you're talking about reading um, the graphics are just hallucinations in your mind as you, envis- you know, envision your character or your realm that you're playing through. And I think in a lot of ways, that can be more compelling than you know, what you can get on the screen because um, just like, re- like I said, just like reading, you build the entire thing in your mind, what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, and I think, that, that's, um, I think that's part of what made these games so good, honestly, is that it left all that to the mind.
0: I saw a thing recently on somewhere on the internet. It said reading is just staring at pieces of old trees until you hallucinate. And that's, <laughs> it's so very true. I've, yeah. Our, uh, our daughter, Isla, uh, she's, you know, she's in school. So she's very interested in reading. Now I read to her every single night and we have a book. It's called the book with no words. And, the whole book is about like, why would you ever want to read a book with no words? And then, you know, it's basically like it plays a trick quote unquote on the person that's reading. It makes you do all these ridiculous things as you're reading it to the kid. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a really awesome gateway to showing kids like, you know, books aren't really about the pictures and that's the pictures. That's the hook that we use in the beginning to get you interested in words on a page. But eventually you evolve out of that and, the pictures are all in your mind and Mm -hmm. you know, I it's, I kind of bounce back and forth about what my favorite content is. It's always between games or books. And it's, it's so interesting because those two things are just about as different as you can possibly get these days. Yeah. You know, games now are graphics are one of the most important parts about games Mm -hmm. because the technology is so advanced and so evolved and then books are the complete opposite of that you know the it's some of the some of the things that play out in my mind while i'm reading can be just as vivid as a game that i'm playing but yeah. it's just a they both like flex different parts of your brain and force you to like go down new avenues of things that that are intriguing to you or things that inspire you and some of it is just glorious eye candy and other things is just glorious brain candy just making up this stuff in your head.
1: Yep. Yeah. And I mean, so I mean, what we're coming to is basically good graphics are clearly not required to make a good game um, or to make a game good. Um, but I think in some cases, even, uh, or uh, probably a lot of cases, there are games that have just incredible graphics. But the game, like, uh, Kind of
0: sucks. Suck ass. Um, yeah, you can't hang everything on graphics. Graphics yeah. have to be accompanied by all these things that you're talking about in these BBSs. You have to have flexibility, a great story. You have to have the constant reward. The gameplay loop needs to be there. And it all needs to yeah. be, it all needs to stand up to hundreds or even thou- thousands of hours of play because that's, you know, games have kind of moved into, uh, you know, the games as a service model where. You buy one game, you buy Destiny or whatever it is, and the developers expect you to just pretty much play that game for the next, you know, six months to a year until the sequel comes out, and that hasn't necessarily created better games. I mean, that's a lot of what that's created has been like this micro transaction hell that yeah. accompanies almost every Ubisoft game these days, and it's kind of unfortunate because, man, if you if you find a a game that just falls back on really like just a few of those great principles that you're, that you're talking about, you don't need to have all this extended, uh, purchasable microtransaction content. You know, you can, I still play ghost recon, which is like a six year old game or something, but just because the gameplay loop is so good. Yeah. You know, and that's, there are, there are classic games like that that exist that you don't need any kind of weird accoutrements or bells and whistles. It's just great game design.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, another question I started thinking about a little bit as I went deeper into this is, what's, a, what's the difference between a good game and a, an addictive game? Is, is there a difference? Is, is a good game necessarily addictive, and vice versa? Are there addictive games that aren't good? I mean, is that yeah. just one one way Candy a, Crush. Yeah, I was going to say something like that. Candy Crush or Farm Bill or something like that. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, I mean, be. some... Yep, okay, yep.
0: Well, it's... I think that those games are more like... I think of those games, they're like the crack of video games. Mm-hmm. You know, they have like this really addictive gameplay loop. And they play on a lot of the same tropes that you're talking about from the early days where it's like you can only do a certain amount of things and then you have now, it's not wait till tomorrow. Now it's buy some more coins. yeah, And that's the problem with like addictive games because the gameplay loop is actually really fun and it keeps you coming back. It's simple and it makes you want to keep doing it. But you know a big problem with games like that, like the free-to-play model in video games Mm -hmm. is having to purchase spend real world money just so you can keep going and i think that's the kind of the problem with having an addictive game where the the objective is to create an addictive game instead of create a great game that ends up being addictive it's because it gets weaponized by the developers like oh we'll give you the game for free but uh after you've played for you know whatever it is 30 minutes to an hour in a day you have to pay 99 cents to keep going And people do it because it's hijacking their limbic system and games really play on your, you know, the feedback loop in your brain of doing a thing and then getting a, like a little dopamine hit. And I think that's the problem with making a game that is specifically addictive is because it's, it's using that against you instead of doing it for you.
1: Yep. And. That is why I uh, only had questions in this section of my notes and no thoughts of myself because I figured you might have some good answers. <laughs> I'll just right, well, second, I'll second everything you just said and uh, move on to the kind of the next thing I was thinking about, which is um, if the formula is so simple, if it's just these few principles you need to follow to uh, create a good game, why do we now have multi-billion dollar studios creating uh, all these giant games? Um, you know, maybe... That's uh, just how much it costs now to find, you know, slightly new twists for something more compelling. Um, You know, other diminishing returns. You have to put more money and more money in to come up with something. And I think maybe a trait that they missed up there was novelty um, in that initial list. Because, you know, you played the same kind of game enough times, you, you know, you played it enough. It's it's the same thing. Um, So I guess the trick is finding that new little twist um, so, I mean, just for example, with the door games, that experience of connecting to another machine um, was just so novel and mind expanding and then competing against strangers. Um, like I said before, before that, everything I'd ever done was in, in a physical face uh, space. You know, this was my first foray into cyberspace, and that's a big part of what made those games so compelling. So I think... Um, you know, is is that what the big studios are doing? Is that what they're just spending all their money on? Is trying to find that next little, you know, bit of novelty to make the next
0: interesting game? What do you think? Well, I don't think that. I don't think novelty is the objective with a lot of AAA games because there's a there's a problem with in games, specifically AAA games of people saying that they all look or perform the same. Basically there's like a triple a formula, you know, it's, it's basically mind blowing graphics Mm -hmm. and a, a open world has kind of become a big part of it, depending on what kind of game you're playing. And then a, an infinite gameplay loop and I've seen videos of AAA games where they, they'll like play a clip from one and they'll play a clip from another and then they just keep going and it just becomes like this very beautiful but very bland blur. This just everything looks the same. And I think with video games, I mean, I, I've read that like a AAA blockbuster game, if they'll have bigger budgets than something like an Avengers movie. You know, it'll be yeah. like a $300 million budget, like a four-year development cycle. And I think the reason why is because it's not novelty they're chasing it's riding the technological wave and it's just really expensive to create these graphics that look pre-rendered and they they look like something you would see in a movie but it's all being rendered in real time it's all fully interactive and every single thing in a video game a new game will end up being bespoke i mean like all the animations are created specifically for that game yeah the sound effects The story everything is all custom made every single time and since the the studios are they're basically resting their hat on this one game when it comes out because they've spent the you know last three or four years of every single person that works there their time and their effort creating this one thing and if it comes out i mean games that fail can end up ruining studios and when that happens that's when you get something like EA, like a publisher or something that people see as being heartless coming in and purchasing these game studios that have had great games in the past and just bringing them into the fold of EA. And then they start churning out this formulaic kind of heartless stuff that people will buy because the gameplay loop is like kind of fun, I guess. And it's, you know, it's Call of Duty or whatever you're used to. But that that's when you start losing a lot of the originality And the freshness is like, especially, you know, if a a game studio has a high pedigree and they fail and they get bought up by a publisher, then it just kind of becomes part of a a machine just churning out the same thing every couple of years. Yeah. Uh, On point with that, I would agree. Well,
1: uh, to kind of bring this home, uh, during this research, I assume this had to be out there. So, you know, even though... Traditional BBSs are pretty much all but extinct. I bet there's somebody out there with a modem on a phone line that you can still dial up to. Um I
0: was able to actually I was gonna ask about this if it still existed. Yeah, so like I was emulators to or something.
1: Find a list of ones that still operate. It's the same software, uh, except for now you don't you don't use a dial up modem. Uh, you connect over the internet with different protocols like telnet and stuff. So there's uh I can put some of this in our show notes. But um, you know, there's still programs you can get to dial into these things and you're still, you know, doing it all through text-based keyboard stuff. And yeah, I found a good list of them. Um I found a couple boards that were—I mean, well, most of them are actually. At this point, they're all about the games. Um, so I got on. I logged onto a couple of them. They're free. Um, I started up a couple of BRE and Lord games, and I mean, I was immediately back into it, watching my stats grow, grinding in the forest and Lord to build up my characters, um, level up, and. Uh, um, but I will say, after a few days, actually, to get a little bit bored of it, um, I suppose, the re novelty had worn off again. Um, but it, I mean, it felt great being back into it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the difference. I actually had friends that I would play with back in the day. And maybe, you know, having somebody you know playing in the games would be. Maybe that's part of it that helped. I don't know. Um, but I think what we're both, the conclusion we're both coming to, I'm pretty certain of this, is that now that we figured out the formula of what makes a good game and realize it's not hoity toity fancy graphics and all this high power computing. We should probably just throw away all of our consoles, burn up our computers, and <laughs> go back to books and te- text-based games where it was simple and easy and your mind built a beautiful world and screw the screw the rest of that. What do you think? Let's burn that PS5. Are you with me?
0: I was going to say, spoken like a person who didn't just get a PS5 <laughs> for Christmas. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Exactly. I... I will admit I am a total <laughs> graphics junkie. I mean, I went to school for computer animation and graphic design. So I've kind of like always been obsessed with not necessarily making that stuff. Cause I don't do it anymore, but yeah. looking at it, there are times, especially the last few days where I fire up Spider-Man just to marvel at the technical wonder yeah. that's going on on screen. And, uh, it's, something that I've always been kind of amazed with and fascinated with games is how they can gamify things that would be completely boring and mundane in real life, like inventory management or yeah. there are games that are like specifically about earning and m- earning money and balancing out like your accounts yeah. and everything. GTA has something like that. where you play the stock market and I just feel like in real life, it'd be like, wow, these are chores yeah. but then when they gamify it when they put it into a gameplay loop or something like Ghost Recon one of my favorite games of all time, one of my favorite things to do is get on and dress the guy up <laughs> right you would not find me dressing myself up for any amount of time uh, I like that <laughs> s- system to be streamlined and as mindless as possible but in a game you know it's just it's so much fun and I- I'm not sure even what it is like what it is about these mundane activities from the real world that is causing these dopamine hits. But I think that's one of the fascinating things about games is how a really good game designer can take normal day, boring activities and make it something that you can't wait to log on and do.
1: Yeah, no, obviously I was just kidding. I actually a super into the technology behind the graphics and the graphics as, as they level up every year um there's actually a couple of youtube channels there's actually one i uh uh do a patreon for this guy that covers like the, the latest advancements and kind of the the simulations and algorithms behind uh computer graphic stuff especially physics based simulations and things like that I, don't, I just remembered uh i don't remember what game it was probably one of the halos i was i remember i was playing with some of my cousins and we went i don't know went into a new level we were playing the the story mode and there was a a huge piece of fabric on the wall that was actually looked like it was blowing in the wind, and it was like the first time I'd seen kind of that level of simulation. It was probably original Xbox, maybe maybe three sixty. I'm not sure. And I, my my response was like, "Holy shit, that's a cool algorithm." And my cousins just yeah, gave me shit for that for years because that's the way I kind of looked at it. Well, I always thought that was pretty funny.
0: Um, yeah, I t- I totally agree with that. Like, I'll see like water physics or something in the game, and just like marvel at what kind of computational power is going on under the hood to make such a a perfect representation of water or cloth or hair. Hair is another big one yeah. that when hair tech started coming on the scene, you <laughs> just totally changed the quality of what you were looking at. And I think man, I've I love talking about video games and one of the reasons is I I think I use video games as a lens through which i focus all of my other content consumption uh i've mentioned this before on the show but it's like if i'm reading a certain type of book then i want to go like a sci-fi book i want to go and find a sci-fi game that emulates these things that i've been seeing in my head as a way to kind of like exercise those ideas from my mind and when i i was playing ghost recon pretty heavily for about four years and while I was playing, I was just consuming all of these books about like Navy Seals and Rangers just because when I wasn't playing, I wanted to have those same kind of dopamine hits from a book. And that's, yeah. uh, that's something that it's kind of like a refinement of video game and I guess content consumption overall is crossing over, crossing the streams and yeah. having the different types of content re- relate and interact with each other.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, that's definitely a big part of why I was so pumped about uh, Cyberpunk 2077, and probably a lot of people, because there's not a lot of good uh, representation of Cyberpunk outside of books. Um, as, I mean, there's nothing really coming to mind. I mean, I'm sure there's some, but like really top level games or movies. There's a few movies. Uh, still one of my favorite is Johnny Mnemonic. Um, with my boy Keanu, shout out Shaka
0: Bra. Um Cyberpunk's right up your alley because he's the main star of the show.
1: Yep, in that game. As beautiful as that game was, if you have the equipment to run it, I mean it's a, I mean it's an absolutely gorgeous game. The top-notch graphics. I mean it's the best shit I've probably ever seen in a lot of a lot of ways. I just I got bored pretty quick. Did you ever get deeper into it? Did you, did you play? It I much? covered
0: it on the show. It's That's one of right. my favorite games I've ever played. That's I right. mean I, uh, I loved the story in that game, and uh, I played it on. Uh, xbox one so i didn't really have a lot of the problems that were plaguing the pc version it was just uh it just it just ran pretty much flawlessly for me and i bought it i think like six months after it came out so all the patches had been updated and yeah that that game it really fell in for me like the flexibility was one of the coolest things about it because they just give you this world and it's like okay there is a story you're following but outside of that, you're living your own story. You're really role playing. And, uh, you know, I, I created like my own mythology for this Batman esque superhero <laughs> that I created that yeah. only used non lethal weapons. And that's just, you know, that, that was the kind of game where when I wasn't playing it, I was just thinking nonstop about it. And, uh, yeah, maybe you should go back and give that one another, uh, another shakedown because it's pretty fantastic all the way through. I thought,
1: yeah, I think we actually may have talked about this a little bit before. I think, console may have been better for me that was the first time i'd play or first time in a long time i'd played a computer-based um first person game so my my fingers on the wasd's and everything weren't exactly what they used to be back in the day and my mouse worked i think that was probably part of it did, did the flexibility open up a little bit more after the beginning the beginning seemed a little bit too scripted for me and that's maybe i didn't get far enough into it to start to feel that flexibility That might have been part of it um
0: yeah, the first, I think it's like the first four hours, depending on which uh, life path you choose, three different life paths, mm-hmm. there's like a, a a separate mini story for each one of those, and then once you get, you know, whatever, you get to the title screen, which is like a few hours in, and then the whole uh, game opens up. It's just like a traditional okay. open world game at that point.
1: That's probably what it probably was for me. I mean, I spent the first four hours just picking out my genitalia for my
0: character. Uh, you can like get some was... nice danglers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was, I mean, that I, was... I was I, I was blown away that I hadn't heard anything about that. And when I'm flipping through my character building, I see some 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 dangling dangled pieces sitting there. I'm like, how is this one? How is this a thing? And two, why is this
0: not first front page news on (laughs) Yahoo News? Right?
1: How come the senators aren't calling in the game developers to grill them on, (laughs) um, you know, whatever? Um, I thought, you know, kudos to them for you know going that deep. I guess. So I think that's a good place to leave it, too, on some dangling dangly bits. Yeah, man.
0: Just go ahead and leave it on, danglers. Uh, (laughs) Nick, it was awesome coming back to the show after a few weeks, and I can't tell you how happy it made me to be able to just nerd out about video games for uh, an hour and a half. That was uh, a real treat. So thank you for that. Yeah, I thought you might like that one. That was yeah, that was a really interesting topic, and it's something that I knew almost nothing about uh, the the actual BBS door game. So thanks, buddy. That's what this show is all about bringing nice uh, bringing new content ideas to me and to the audience. So thank you for that, Nick, and thank you everyone out there in podcast land for sticking with us while we were gone on break for a bit. Uh, we truly appreciate you guys. And if you want to send us a message, just contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite BBS games from the past. Anything you really want to tell us. Uh, also, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at the Content Clearinghouse. And stay tuned. We'll be back here in eh, maybe a couple of weeks with a new episode jammed directly into your ear holes. bra.